Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, welcome back to the show, mate. Thank you. First time in person? Yes, yeah, first time ever. So we've been doing podcasts for a couple of years. Yeah, and we're recording in the office, which is nice. Yeah. So if you are watching on YouTube, good day. Um, hopefully, we'll have you back too for the reporting season um, where we do some of the weekly shows and we talk about companies. That'll be heaps of fun. They'll come, come up in August. But right now, we're talking about Australian equities ETFs. So the most popular names include VAS or ticker symbols, the A200 ETF, MVW, which is a van equal weight. But STW, and I might just throw IOZ in here as just like a little one on the side as well. But um, well, it's not little, it's $4.5 billion. Um, so we're talking about ETFs, super popular topic um, because people think of ETFs, particularly in Aussie equities, for their core of their portfolios. For those that aren't familiar with what you do, mate, you're obviously a CFP, financial planner, um, everyday SMSF association. Yeah. You do it all. Everything. Everything. Um, <laughs> right. So a lot, lot of content. Yeah, a lot of content for Inside Advisor, Inside Network. Uh, you do the daily report on Mass Media. You have two different variations of portfolios that you construct for clients, right? You've got like a light version and then you've got like the fully sophisticated version as well. Yeah. Can you explain how those two work? They, I mean, they both work on the same concept of you know, strategic asset allocation is the most powerful driver of returns over the long term. Mm-hmm. The difference between the two is one is fully implementable on the ASX and the other requires platforms, includes managed funds. Uh, and I mean, you initially probably thought it would be cost-driven why you'd use ETFs versus mm-hmm. managed fund, uh, but it was almost the ease of implementation, being able to service and offer that to younger clients who were probably more comfortable with the volatility that came with it as well. Yeah, right. Um, but essentially identical. You're just looking for a different uh, instrument to implement each each position or idea. So so basically, you've got two different streams that clients could go into. One is full of ETFs and the other one has ETFs, but it also has other things like managed funds through the platform. They're actually kind of merging together at the moment. I think we were right. talking earlier this week uh, with the consultants we use uh, that bringing more of that lower cost core into our uh, active portfolio at the same time. So mm. um, yeah, historically, it was 100% passive with the active decisions being asset allocation driven mm-hmm. versus 100% active in the uh, managed fund model. Yep. Uh, but definitely, yeah, they're going to look very similar mm. <laughs> over the next 12 or 18 months. So do you, this is an interesting point because a lot of the conversations that you have with advisors and even individual investors is it seems to be evolving in some way. So for, from, from my point of view, we see like lots of advisors moving the core of their portfolio to things like we're about to talk about, yeah. whereas it's like low cost asset allocation is driving returns. Let's go for low cost, like transparency with the portfolios. Are you seeing that as well? Yeah, I think it's difficult when you've got a portfolio in place to keep thinking about it as a blank sheet of paper. But if you mm-hmm. have a blank sheet of paper, you have to think about what you're trying to achieve. And generally that's, you know, two to 3% above the benchmark, whether that's the ASX 200 or the MSCI. Mm. Uh, but how do you achieve that without first getting the benchmark? And probably 2022 has been the most interesting where markets have fallen and been so volatile. 
know, just getting the benchmark is is difficult. So mm. I think more and more people are understanding that, that you can have a low-cost core, you can keep the end cost down to your clients and investors because costs are important. Um, and then you use that what we call a fee budget to take active risk and try to get that 2 to 3% outperformance. So how do you uh, – I know we're going to get onto ETFs in just a second, <laughs> but um, so the fee budget, that sounds interesting. So effectively you're trying to keep the fees – for the portfolio capped for your um, clients. Yeah. So you can take costs out where you can and then you that gives you the, the scope to allocate fees to say active funds or whatever. Where, yeah. do, you, where do you typically find most of the fees going? Uh, most of the fees, I mean, if you look at the way pension funds work and they've probably been doing it for the longest, mm-hmm. they have a low cost or internal core. So mm-hmm. ASX, MSCI, global equities and they spend all their fee budget on private market assets, so unlisted infrastructure, venture capital. Um, I think the majority of advised portfolios spend all the fee budget on active fund mm. managers, whether that's global equities or Australian equities. Yeah, right. And you, you know, the, we look at these, the, you'll pay 10 basis points for an ASX 200, but an active manager for the same kind of index would be close to 1%. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, and do you, just final question on this then, do you find that when you speak with active managers that you have any type of um, scope to ask them to reduce fees? Yeah, I think it's an important role of an advisor. Uh, you know, in working with an advisor, they're able to not necessarily pull but negotiate with uh, managers using the assets that they manage. Mm. Um, so we can generally uh, do – obviously, the bigger you are, the more discount you can get, but yep. we can generally negotiate. Yeah, right. Um, okay. So um, there was one question that I had on the topic of Aussie equity ETFs, which was at the end – but maybe we can bring it up to the top of the show. Is or do you want me to do it? No, no, it's no, all good. Yeah, yeah, okay. Because I think this kind of sets the scene for then how do you get the expression, which is um, if we think about a portfolio, most people will fo- that listen to this probably follow some type of like core or satellite type of exposure where they have the low-cost core exposed to the key markets. Yeah. And then they have, like you said, in terms of your fee budget, you might they might think about it like as a tactical or a satellite allocation where they're like, I'm going to go for active here, thematic there, unlisted assets here, whatever. How much would you th- consider to be reasonable for an a- allocation to Aussie equities, whatever, however you think about that, so whether it's active or passive, for say someone that's 30 versus someone that's 60, like just in, to put some context around this? When... As we'll go into this, you'll we'll talk about how the nature of the ASX 200 is, isn't that diversified. Mm. It's half of it's in two sectors. Yeah. So naturally, the index should be more volatile than active managers. Uh, our, our view generally is that younger people with longer-term investment horizons can allow compounding hap- to happen over a longer period and invest more. So they'd naturally better hold on, hold more in that passive core okay. or that low-cost index core. Yep. Um, I mean, now we'd probably start at a depending on, you know, most fee budgets start about what Australian supercharges, to be completely honest, and that's yep. like 70 basis points. Yep. So if you work from there, you can usually have about 40 to 50% in uh, low cost mm-hmm. before you, and then have plenty of fee budget to get up to 60 or 70 yeah, right. basis okay. points with okay. active management. That makes sense. And how about then, for, so for someone like, one of the ways that I know, say like a pre-retiree or just going into retirement uh, type of client, thinks about things is they really only care about their portfolio allocation three years out from retirement and then three years after retirement and then they kind yeah. of give it up and say to an advisor can you do it for me 
Um, when they come to you at that age, are they do they come with what you would consider a reasonable mix and asset allocation? So I'm thinking like 20% Aussie equities, 30% Aussie equities, I don't know, something like that. Most people come to us with no strategy, right. just a collection of assets that have been put together <laughs> yeah, <laughs> over, right, okay. over decades. Even you know some stock portfolios of people have been building them themselves, they might have 40 different holdings and mm. you know, are really building an index fund. <laughs> yeah, yeah, building their own index uh, without knowing it. Yeah, and yeah. just spending a lot of time thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, so most people don't have a lot of strategy. Um, there's always a lot of overlap. And you know, one of the most important things we have is you have an investment policy that, that even if it's on two pages, guides every investment decision. Mm. And part of that is talking about how much you want in passive and how much you want in mm. um, active at any given time. So some, I mean, valuations are important. So you can buy the ASX about 14 times PE. I know it's backward looking, but yeah. um, <laughs> it works. That's reasonably cheap. If the you know if the Aussie PE was close to 20 times, you'd probably think about having less in passive if you're yep. worried about the valuation of the entire index. So Okay, interesting. All right, so let's talk about Aussie equity ETFs. And we've got a collection of four or five here, the biggest. The biggest by far is the Vanguard VAS ETF. That's at the As of the end of April, this is using ASX data, April 2022, it had $11 billion in it. So can you tell us a little bit about this ETF, what it does, if you like it, if you don't? Yep. I mean, pretty probably the most straightforward uh, replicates the ASX or the S and P ASX 300 mm-hmm. for the specific name, isn't it? Yeah, you always have to put that in for sure. <laughs> um, uh, which is small, mid, and large caps. So you know, small caps generally under three or four hundred million. Yep. Mid caps anything up to a couple of billion, and then large caps everyone knows the top twenty. Mm-hmm. I mean, Vanguard is just a, like the original innovator in financial services. I'm sure you've done a few yep. on them before. They got seven trillion almost all in index strategies like this. Mm. Um, market cap weighted, so it only just invests into each company on size, charges 10 basis points, so that's 0.1% mm. for the index replication. Um, and I mean, the reason for the low cost, similar to what the other ones we'll talk about, is that the concept of Vanguard is that the, as more money goes into the, into the funds, the fees go down mm. uh, in kind of unison with that. So that's why they track towards zero. And that's mm. why they've got $7 trillion mm. in US dollars. Well, that's, and that's what we were talking before this morning when we were caught up. Um, that's a, it's kind of unique amongst them, amongst the providers because they are deliberately lowering that cost. I remember a couple of years ago, I think it was 15 basis points. Now it's 10. Yeah. And while that doesn't seem like a lot, it's actually, you know, a third coming off it. So it's, it's quite a big fall in a few years yeah, definitely. in terms of the fees. So that's good. Um, so you would expect, I guess you would, over time, you'd expect it to keep falling, maybe not to zero, but. We'll go close to zero. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a trend, you know, ETFs are kind of causing it in the active management space as well, where, yeah. you know, if you have scale, you probably need to be pushing your fees lower. Yeah. Um, and ETFs are just forcing it by giving people an alternative. Yeah. I think someone quoted the other day, which was, no, it was the fact that financial services or investment is the only industry where you can get the average free, essentially. So yeah. you can get the benchmark without paying nearly anything for it, where, you, know, you can't go to a doctor and get mm. get an average doctor for nothing. Yeah, that's okay. it. And yeah, I think it was Kev from Atchison. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah so and that's the thing, right? Like um, we talk about this a lot in investing. It's like long-term investing 10, 20 years. And if you just look at the longevity of the passive strategies, they're the ones that have performed consistently over a very long period of time, at least yeah. when it comes to these types of products. So 
for, for investors sitting back thinking, well, I am investing for 10 or 20 years. Um, these types of products like VAS, it's easy to see why they're so popular because we've seen the studies from Spiva and all those places, yeah. um, how effective they are. Um, maybe this is an interesting segue then into, uh, into the next one. If just off the top of your head, this is a bit of a pop quiz. So I'm putting you on the spot. Now, the BetaShares A200 ETF is very, very similar to the Vanguard ETF, the VAS, but it only has 200 companies in it, right? Yeah. Now, I'm going to ask you, over the last five years, if we looked at the standard deviation of VAS versus the standard deviation over the last three years of BetaShares, which one do you think is more volatile? The ASX 300 should be because it's holding small caps. Yeah, see, this is the thing. Over three years, the uh, BetaShares A200 has 17, no, we're measuring Boland, 17.65%, um, but Vanguard is 14.86. So it's interesting, um, fewer holdings, but the shorter time horizon shows you more volatility, which makes sense. We've been through COVID. Yeah. We've been through recent times as well. Um, when you look at ETFs, because this ETF, A200, BetaShares follows the Selective Index, which is a cheaper index, as far as I'm aware, allows it to drive down costs. When you look at ETFs, do you pay as much attention to the track record for these passive ETFs as you would for an active fund? Like I saying, some advisors, or at least in researchers' uh, history, they would go three years. If you don't have a three-year track record, we don't want to talk to you. Yeah. Would you would you say the same thing for ETFs and passive ETFs at that? No, I mean, as long as it's tracking the index and within, you know, after fees, it's it's in line. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the only thing that matters when you're buying an ETF. Yeah. And you track tracking the history is just telling you what the yeah, the index has done for the last three years. So mm. um, you probably want to view on the future when you're allocating, um, as in, do you expect the ASX to keep delivering those returns over the next 10 years? Yeah, right. Okay. Um so here's an, another metric that we talk about when it comes to index funds and index ETFs and ETFs in general, but in particular, these two types like the index and ETFs um, is tracking error. Yep. So that's the difference between what the index is doing that they're supposed to be tracking and the fund itself. Yep. How much attention do you pay to that? And does that ch- has your view on that changed over time? Uh, we probably pay more on active. Okay. Because that's where, you know, if you're paying an active fee, yeah, you course. want a higher tracking error because tracking error essentially is the only driver of getting active returns. Yep. Um, yeah, I think you have to pay attention to it. Um, I, I think when they're this size and they've got four, five billion, a billion plus, yep. um, they're rel- kind of proven um, and your tracking error is always going to be, should be incredibly small yep. for, you know, Probably, I'm not sure if you got it there, zeros, put zero I don't have something. it in front of me, but yeah, yeah. it would be tiny. It should be very, very yeah. small. Although, you know, some of the indexes, they, obviously you can't hold every single stock and index at the exact percentage every single day. So there is always going to be a little bit of differentiation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you always keep an eye on it when, when you're doing that initial due diligence process. You know, do you want ASX 200? Do you want ASX 300? Is, is it providing a full, you know, replication of the benchmark you want? Um, but yeah, unless it's a kind of a new strategy, you should be pretty clear. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Yeah, it's – so for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, this is the difference between the, the benchmark and the, and the fund assets. Typically, what we see is when a fund is newer, it tends to have a bit more tracking error. It tends to be a bit more all over the place. Um, and you do see that settle over time as the fund grows and market makers do their thing and so on and so forth. Um, so for the VAS ETF, I just had the data here in front of me. Since inception, 
the the NAV is up 9.51% per year and the benchmark is up 9.63. So what's that? Eight basis points a year yep. tracking error. So it's really, I mean, at the end of the day, we're splitting hairs here. Most investors would look at this and be like, oh, I didn't. Like I wouldn't. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty close. Yeah, it's pretty close. It's good. <laughs> it's a rounding error. Yeah, um, but it's something that researchers I know think a lot about. The other ETF here, Drew, is the STW ETF. This comes from Spider, uh, four point eight billion, uh, thirteen basis points or zero point one three percent. What does this ETF do? So State Street's the the junior from Vanguard. Probably too too yeah. harsh to say that. They've, they've got four trillion versus seven trillion, and then what BlackRock's got ten trillion or close to ten trillion. Yep. Uh, it's very similar. Just tracks the ASX two hundred rather than the three hundred. So it cuts out that uh, two hundred to three hundred group mm. of companies that are usually small caps. And I like to look at the what's at the bottom end of these indices. Yeah, I like so that. the bottom end of the AXX two hundred is. Codan, which I think is that uh, metal detecting detection, yeah. Yeah, and batteries, Blackmore, City Chic, and Tyro. And then at the bottom of the 300, I mean, they're all about a billion market cap. And then the bottom of the 300 is BWX, Redbubble, and Newix. Yeah, I won't right. talk about Newix. <laughs> you know my backstory there. But they're about 200 million market cap. So really small cap companies versus yeah. still billion dollar market cap at the other end. So can I actually, I'm going to do a bit of pop uh, trivia again. So before I said, um, Vanguard VAS over five years was 14.86% 4, standard deviation here. What do you think STW is, knowing that it has it's trimmed off that bottom 100, um, also over five years? I think it was 14 when I checked it last night. Yeah, so it's also 14. There's, in terms of the, the standard deviation of volatility here, it's very, very small. Yeah. So the, the difference is actually tiny, and that's probably due to the weightings of those 100 companies, right? Because it's market cap weighted, you've got less in those that 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 two to three hundred range. Yeah, and that should be where your volatility and you know if you're taking more risk, that's where you should be getting more reward, but also more volatility with it. Mm. It's interesting though, right? Because I I've looked at I've also looked at just just the returns at a high level. It's about forty basis points different in the return over the last three years. Yeah. Um, over the five year, it's about thirty. So, you know, this in terms of Worse, yeah. Slightly, I'm not yeah. worse, but just yes, slightly yeah, worse. slightly worse. So STW being worse than Vanguard VAS, and yeah. we, we, just uh, again, small numbers here, but over the long term, it can make a difference. You, would you put that down to the small companies being a driver of growth over recent times? Yeah, if you've checked at twelve, oh, you know, in December, it probably would have been the opposite. I mean, mm-hmm. if you read my daily, I always track the ASX two hundred rather than the three hundred all the all odds, and just because really our the client base. We have, we wouldn't touch anything outside the ASX 200 as yeah. a direct investment anyway. So that's our relevant benchmark, I think. Yep. Fair um, enough. And I think it'd be solely due to the, you know, there's more risk of um, financial troubles and more cyclical companies, more small miners in that two, two to 300 range. Yeah. And you're really talking about, you know, real semi blue chips, if they're still possible to mm. call things blue <laughs> chips in the ASX 200. Yeah, and that's fair. Yeah, and that's fair because, and, and and we see some of the ETFs target that two to three hundred range as kind of like a small cap ETF yeah. or a mid to small cap ETF because that's where people don't have a lot of exposure because they do just have the standard two hundred, um, and in Australia that two to three hundred range market cap company is actually quite small versus overseas where that would be still massive by our standard. Yeah, a global small cap or a global SMID, as yep. they call them, is anywhere from like two to five billion, and yep. an Aussie small is two hundred million, so yep. ten times smaller. 
And also the other thing is if you don't know how indexes are constructed or indices are constructed or even the ETFs, it's actually quite hard to track true small and micro caps in Australia because of how illiquid they are. To buy and sell them as an ETF is very hard. So that's why a lot of them don't do full replication. Yeah. They, they do that synthetic exposure to the to the and, underlying index. And the Spiva scorecard always shows, I think, that smaller companies uh, managers or active managers in smaller companies tend to do better than the index because yeah. there are so many illiquids and- yeah, that liquidity premium. And so this is, yeah, like when you go into those darker pools, that's where the active tends to be better. And we see that overseas as well with uh, emerging markets, equities managers as well. Okay, so um, maybe we can just both riff on this next one because it's probably the most different of all of them, but it's very popular in Australian equities, which is the VanEck MVW Equal Weight ETF. When I pulled the numbers this morning, just straight from the VanEck website, it had 89 holdings. So all of these other ETFs that we're talking about have 200 or plus. Um, it's got a higher fee load at 0.35%, which is somewhat standard for the VanEck range of uh, ETFs. So it's an equal weight ETF. And I do have some data here in front of me. Again, just pulling this from today. Is that against the 200? 100. What was that? Equal weighting of ASX 100 um, That is a good question. I think it's a, uh, 100. 100. Yeah. yeah. And um, I've got the, the sector allocations here. So in terms of sector weightings, the big play for this one is basically – if you have a market, and I was reading the, the white paper for this, if you have a market that is narrow and top heavy, equal weight can help because yeah. we are narrow in terms of we have a few companies, not that many companies, and we're top heavy and now we've got banks and resources at the very top. 54%. Yeah. So financials for this ETF make up 19% versus in the VAS ETF where it's in the plus 20% range. Yeah. Um, and in terms of resources, we've got 18.8% here. So- they're trying, they're trying to wind that back. Where we say in the VAS ETF, it's 25% for materials. Yeah. So we're trying to wind back those two and then allocate elsewhere. Uh, we have fewer companies and the top 10, if I just bring this up again, only make up like a top 10. Uh, duh, duh, duh. I think it's less than, oh, I should have these numbers pre-prepared. I do not, Drew, sorry. But I think it's only like um, 20% of the portfolio. Yeah, so, maybe about like what, between one and a half and 2% in Yeah, exactly. Holding. I don't think anything is more than say 1.6. Yeah. So we're seeing here that they're trying to deliberately just allocate further down the market cap spectrum, probably to that 50 to 100 range. Yeah. Question you posed to me before we jumped on air was, is this an active decision to buy this ETF? Yeah. It is? I think it is. Why did you say that? I actually think you can put it next to a VAS or the other options as well because the sector uh, allocations are so different and the stock allocations. Mm. You know, any any decision that's not trailing, following the index or the market cap weighting is obviously going to be active. Yep. Um, but I think it's it can be super powerful. We've had it in one of our, our ETF models mm -hmm. uh, for quite a while and, I mean, particularly – not, not saying the market's overvalued or anything at the moment, but when you've got two sectors making up 50% and both those are doing incredibly well at the moment, you know, CBA over 100, BHP, Rio, all these companies pumping out profits, well, buying the index, which has less 20% less exposure to them, uh, is a good diversifier. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, and this is, a, this is an ETF that often wins a lot of the, the, what, you know, the, the awards for innovative ETF, you know, unique exposure to Australian equities. So price earnings ratio of the ASX, as you said before, is 14, 14.6. Yep. Price earnings ratio of this ETF, the MVW ETF is 15 times. Um, the average or medium market cap for MVW is 23 billion. For VAS, it's 44. 
So would you expect with this ETF more volatility or less volatility than the VAS ETF? I think it naturally has a higher mid cap exposure or yep. end of the 100 just because it's going to be equal weighted. So more volatility yep. for sure. Am I going to be embarrassed again? No, no you're right. So 16.1 versus 14.86 for VAS. So yes, it does. Um, and that, so that tells you how much that you expect the market to be to, and that's a historical average, isn't it? Yeah, sixteen that, percent. Yeah, that's yeah, how much you expect the market to move on a yearly basis. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so next, this is another bit of trivia for you. So I'm comparing it to the VAS ETF because it is like the poster child; it's the biggest. I didn't know this was a test. Yeah. So this is um, this is, <laughs> this is ETFs one oh six. Uh, end of the first year. So here we go. Um, v- Vanguard VAS return over five years, right? Is 10.29% annualized. That's total return, 10.29. Do you reckon, given the volatility that we've had, this is the end of April 2022, would it be more or less than that? So for MVW, we've got 10.29 for VAS. I just think it's a complete guess. Yeah, (laughs) I was going to say it would have slightly underperformed, more so because of the last four months. See, I would have guessed and said more, but you're right. It is. Is 9.73, so 60 basis points lower. But the reason why I would have said more is for the last five years, it's done so well. Yeah. Um, so I was surprised to see that it you know, hadn't achieved that. Um, so you mentioned before, and this is important, I think, for a lot of our listeners, is you said you might even compare this because this is an active decision. It's a higher fee load at 0.35% as well. Yeah. Would you be setting a, I don't know if you use them, but like a large cap Aussie equities active manager against something like this? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you can put a lot. You could put VAS next to it. You could put uh, a high yield, like an income-producing strategy next to it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but That's I think it works in an active or a passive portfolio because you're getting uh, a low-ish cost exposure to mid to large-cap companies. So, mm-hmm. um, And, I mean, one thing we look at and the, the Atchison guys look at is what does it when you put it next to each other? What does a portfolio act, actually look like? Mm. You know, so if you plug in all the stock holdings in the VAS and next to this, uh, it offers real, very different holdings. Mm. Um, so you, you're moving, removing your tilt towards materials within a within a bigger portfolio. So could you then have could you then have say if you're building out your core with the likes of VAS, SCW, A200, IOZ, which is another one that we can talk about? Um, could you then if you're tilting back into Aussie equities for whatever reason, could you use MVW for that? Yeah, yeah. I'd do it on a value, kind of on a valuation basis, because you know you're taking. If you think banks are overdone, or materials, mm-hmm. or what's next, healthcare, yep. then you might tilt into these. Or if you think that the sectors that are underrepresented, like tech, uh, consumer companies, then you might tilt into this at a given time. Okay, interesting. Um, so there's one more ETF which uh, it's, I'll just I'll mention on the end here. I didn't actually realize, but our producer off screen here, Monique, did buy this ETF. Um, you can't even forget th- BlackRock. Even though we didn't have a recommendation, <laughs> Monique went ahead and did anyway. Just said, here you go. Um, so it's iShares, and by the way, it was a great purchase. Um, so iShares uh, ETF IOZ, um, just a standard uh, ASX 200, you know, core holding. Uh, nine basis points is the fee load. Yeah, uh, 4.5 billion in the fund. Comparable, obviously, in, on risk and return metrics to STW because it's the same. Um, I don't know if you use this in models, IOZ. No, we've tended to use the Vanguard historically. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. So there, these are probably that the five preeminent um, 
equities ETFs here in Australia. So just to recap, we've got A200, we've got VAS, STW, MVW, and IZ. There are many others, but there are ethical tilts on this. There are income tilts on this. There are active, obviously. There are so many different ways to play this. So historically, you just said you use VAS. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, and what's the, I guess, the driving fact? Like what, what are you, what's pushing you to, to VAS? We were actually using VHY, which was the high income the high, producing, yeah, high so not one, yeah. VAS. And yeah. really, the I think Vanguard's high yield strategy was one of the better ones. Yeah. So we've tended to keep that one, not yeah. VAS, sorry. Yeah. yeah, okay, so VHY. Yeah, I've looked at that because with VHY, uh, and I was in a bit of a debate about this the other day, VHY is another one that's focusing on high yield. Yeah. You occasionally can get yield traps in that because historically, it was a bit blunt in terms of how it targeted yield yeah but then it started bringing analyst consensus and it started to improve it like i remember a few years ago remember when bhp cut its dividend i think that was quite a big position and it didn't pay the full dividend so people were disappointed um but that's actually really interesting because from tax effective point of view vhy over vas probably makes sense because you're collecting dividends rather than paying out capital. Yeah, I think your franking on VAS is only 80%. And I th- yeah, right. would say it's pretty much 100 in VHY without looking at it. Yeah, I don't have the, the data off the top of my head. Either. This is a great podcast for, we should have had the data, but um, <laughs> see the show notes. <laughs> There's all links to the websites and the PDS, of course. Um, yeah, so that's another one, which which we could, we could talk maybe in another episode about factors and um, income-focused ETFs. But, yeah. um, you know, for the most part, the equity yield on these ETFs will be about 4 to 5%. You get yep. franking credits as well. So you still need to hold them for the 45 days. You still need to be a long-term investor and all that, but you get all of that. Uh, for me, historically, I own, just for disclosure, I own the A200 ETF in my portfolio. We had recommended it back in the day when all the other ETFs had higher fee loads, but now they've all come down. They're comparable to A200. There's a part of me now that if I had my time again, I probably would have gone with VAS simply because if you're investing for 10 or 20 years and Vanguard's committed to lowering the fees, as your balance gets bigger, the fees come down. So unless beta shares want, if you're listening beta shares, <laughs> unless beta shares want to lower their fees, there's probably a natural you know, gravitation towards VAS. Yeah. I don't know if that's fair. Would you say it's fair or? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, we're not talking about much, are we? Like yeah. 0.03 of a percent, but it is important. And I think as as you get more size, it'll keep going down anyway. They, you know, they'll all probably sit at the same point at some point. But mm. Vanguard's got seven trillion, mm. um, and Beta shares, assume is I can't, I can't remember forty billion, fifty billion. So yeah. uh, as they grow, I'm sure it'll come down. I mean, I I'd probably go. I like the ASX 200 okay. more than the 300. So the State Street. Uh, slightly more expensive, wasn't it? 13 bips. Yep. Yep. Slightly more expensive. Like you said, you're probably splitting hairs at yeah. that type of For portfolio like- construction purposes, they're 200. Yep. Okay. Interesting. Um, I, I think there is a lot that we could go on here. Like in terms of how we could take this conversation to other places, like in terms of where we go down to thematics, which are more interesting, but often, you know, they're not always reliable, the thematic ETFs. So you have to be careful there. But um, for building out a core, I think this is a, a great discussion around the options that are available to people. I had one question to you, which was just around the issuer of uh, an ETF provider, like the ETF provider themselves. You mentioned that Vanguard has this much invest uh, under the assets under management. Um, Beta shares has this much. In the core of a portfolio, and maybe I'm thinking about the Waddle Partners like ETF model that you got, does the issuer play a big part in that? Or it's probably more about liquidity, 
Like yeah, right. we don't we don't care if it's Vanguard, BlackRock, Beta Shares. We want an exposure if it's the two hundred or the three hundred. Mm-hmm. And then all you want to all you want to be focused on is how liquid is it? Can I easily trade in and out? And with these core strategies, it's fine. Like okay. each one has a billion, I think you've said anyway. Yeah. It's when you go into the smaller and different asset classes that you probably issuer matters more. Yeah. How about then if it's a new issuer? But they and they've sort of issued an ETF in Australia, um, but they don't have. This is their first ETF in Australia, um, and it's a like good liquidity profile. It's just like a standard ASX thing. Like I imagine someone comes out and they're like, "We're going to do the Australian ASX 200 for one basis point." Like, is that does the issuer play a bigger part there? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, like because every chance that thing doesn't exist in <laughs> yeah, three right. or four years yep. at one basis point uh, depends how much money they've got to yeah. they need a lot. to lose for <laughs> yeah. the next five years while they get to scale at one basis point. Yeah, but, I mean even in the case we've seen that ETFs close down. I think Vanguard closed one down a few weeks ago. Russell the, last year and the uh, global active. UBS. But it's yeah. just standard. Pro- it's normal process. You don't lose anything. You just get shares are sold and you get your money back. So. Um, I think it matters then if it's new and if it's got scale or liquidity um, and then who it's partnering with is always important. Do they partner with good market makers? Are they? Yep. Is there always someone supporting? Yeah. Hey, question for you then. Um, sorry, I'm taking this on a tangent multiple times. <laughs> but um, for the ETF market makers, so the, the firms behind the scenes that are delivering units and doing creations and redemptions and whatever, um, we don't have to go into it now because there's was a whole podcast on this, but how much attention do you pay to that? Do you think a lot about that when it comes to maybe not so much equities, but other types of markets like foreign markets where they've got to invest across currencies and so on and so forth? Like how do you get comfortable with that? Yeah, definitely. And if we're trading, we trade in-house. So if we're trading a lot, we have to have a relationship with market makers if there's less uh, yeah. volume. You know, Even trading preference shares, there can be less volume. So. Being able to call someone on the other side, confirm price, and then uh, trade it appropriately. Mm-hmm. You, know, you could lose 1% by not getting the right price in a less liquid ETF if you're not mm. um, if you're not making the call. But yeah. that's obviously at the smaller end. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Okay, great. So we've covered all of the major ETFs. Um, you talked about like how you allocate fee loads and, and budgets across the portfolios while you have two different variations, but they're kind of coming becoming one at Waddle Partners. Yep. Um, you said that you like the ASX 200 because it removes that kind of two to 300, which is pretty small. Um, I like uh, VAS probably now, uh, given that the fee load is comparable with the A200 ETF. Uh, we also talked about VHY. Maybe we can do a separate podcast on that um, because it is very, very popular for the income-seeking crowd and people that care about the total return. You know, It doesn't really matter how it comes to you. Do you prefer income or do you prefer growth? Yeah. So... Um, Drew Meredith from Water Partners. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for doing this first episode in person, mate. Thanks again.